All right, well, we're going to get into the teaching today, and, and I know I need to get through it because I've already told you we've got a huge feast coming when I'm done, and so you're just putting up with me now until the food gets served. But we're going to jump into the Word. We are in a teaching series called Legacy, and, and the point of this teaching series is that we would see that all of us have a legacy, thousands of years worth of a legacy of God's people who have lived for God, who have struggled, who have failed, who have bounced back from their failures, who have experienced God, seen God's miracles, learned from God, and now they are passing that legacy on to us. And our, our, our goal is to find our place in God's story so that we can continue to carry this heritage, not only in our lives, but then that we would continue to pass it on to the next generation. So a quick recap of the intro so that everybody's on the same page, and then we're going to jump into this week's teaching. The word legacy means anything handed down from the past, as from an ancestor or predecessor. So a legacy is anything that your ancestors have given you. So it could be physical things that have been passed down. could be family culture and heritage. It could be stories that have been passed down to you. But we believe that the Bible has been passed down to us as a legacy, that God has preserved it over thousands of years and that we still have it in its pure form and it's been given to us and handed down to us that we might know God and know the story of God. We've got two goals in this teaching series. Number one is that we would all have a greater understanding of the entire Bible from cover to cover, how it's put together, and how it tells the story of God. Second goal is that we would see every story and every character in the Bible that we would see that they have something to teach us today. And why is this important? Because if we accomplish these two goals, we're going to be more likely to read our Bibles every day. Because the reason we don't read our Bible usually comes down to, number one, we don't understand it, and we try to read it, and we don't get it, and so we just decide, ah, I don't want to read it. Or the second reason why we don't read our Bible is because we think it's just old stories about old people that don't apply to us today. And if we would see that every word in the Bible, every passage, every story, every book in the Bible is still speaking to us today, that we will be more and more empowered to read it. And if we do read it, reading the Bible every day is the number one indicator of spiritual growth and successfully fulfilling God's plans. And so as your pastor, I want to do everything I can to equip you and encourage you to read the Bible every day because I know that that is the best thing for you to grow spiritually. That is the best thing for you to discover God's plans and successfully fulfill God's plans. Now... The numbers say this, a research study was done all across the United States, not just of Christians, but just of all people that live in America. Tens of thousands of people were surveyed, and this is what they found out, that 80% of all Americans believe that the Bible is sacred scriptures. So 80% of Americans believe that the Bible is a holy book. That's a good start. 66% of Americans believe that the Bible contains everything you need to live a meaningful life. So again, this isn't just Christians. This is all Americans. Two out of every three would tell you that they believe that the Bible has everything in it that you need to live your life. Again, that's encouraging. Until we get to the third stat, only 13% of Americans read the Bible every day. So 80% believe it's God's holy word. 66% believe it has everything in it that you need for life. 
but only 13% will read it every day. My heart is that here at Kauai Bible Church, we'd have 100%. That everyone that's a part of our church would be reading it every day. And that we would see amazing spiritual growth that would be birthed out of that. So you can see on our slide here that we have broken down the Bible into eight sections. And that's why this is going to be an eight-week teaching series. Is we're going to go through each section of the Bible and help you understand what's in that section. And also look at some key figures, some key people that are in that section. So last week we looked at the law, the first five books of the Bible. And we looked at Moses and what is the legacy that Moses is handing down to us. Today we're going to look at section number two, which is the history. What do we find in the history books? And what is the legacy that's being handed down to us? Now I told you every week I was going to give you a Bible fact. Just some factoid to help you understand the Bible more and a little bit more about its history. And so last week, your Bible fact was that the Bible is not assembled in chronological order. The books are all out of order. And so you can't just read through it and expect it to make sense. You've got to figure out where every book fits. Here's Bible fact number two. While we call the Old Testament the Hebrew or Jewish Bible... And the reason that Jewish people are called Hebrews is because that's the language they spoke. They spoke the Hebrew language. Almost all of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew with maybe just a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled in. So while we call it the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible, it was actually laid out differently by the ancient Jews. That the Jews' Old Testament was laid out differently than our Old Testament. So I'm going to teach you guys a word today. That word is Tanakh. Everybody say Tanakh. All right, Tanakh is actually a Jewish acronym. The T and the N and the K all stand for something. The A's are just there to make it a word because Tunk didn't sound as good as Tanakh, so they threw some A's in there. Tanakh, the T stands for Torah, which is the books of the law, and those first five books are the same that we have. Then the N stands for Nevi'im, which is Hebrew for the prophets. So their second section of the Old Testament is what they considered the prophets, which had all of the same prophets we do, except Daniel. Don't know why Daniel got left out. And then they also considered the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings to be prophetic books as well. And you'll notice they combined Samuel into one book. They combined Kings into one book. They even combined all 12 of the minor prophets into one book. So it might look like the Jewish Bible has fewer books than ours does, but it doesn't. It's, it's the exact same Bible, just laid out in a different order. And the K stands for Ketavim, which means in Hebrew, the writings. And this is what they considered the other collection of writings. So this is where Daniel ended up. He didn't make the prophets list. He, he ended up in the writings. But we also have all of the poetry books, Lamentations, and then some of the history books like Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and again, Chronicles combined into one book. This is the Tanakh. And for the Jewish people, they viewed this TNK as the order of importance. So the T, the Torah, was of utmost importance. So they broke the Torah up into 52 weekly readings, and they read through the Torah every year. The Nevi'im, the prophets, was the second level of importance. They would read a lot of the passages from the prophets, but they wouldn't necessarily read through all of it every year. And then the Ketuvim, the writings, was the third level of importance. They would generally read from the writings around holidays and special Jewish feasts. 
So it's the same exact Bible. It contains all the same content. It was just laid out differently and viewed differently by the ancient Jews. Tanakh, that was the Jewish Bible. There you go. You learned something new about the Bible today. So let's talk about the history books. This contains the books of Joshua through Esther. So what happens in the story? We left off the story where Moses led the people out of Egypt. God gave them the law, which was supposed to be a, a temporary form of redemption until the Savior would come. And then Moses brought them through the wilderness, but Moses never got them into the promised land. And that's where we start in the book of Joshua. It starts with Joshua leading the Israelites in the conquest of Canaan so that they could possess the land that God promised to them. So the book of Joshua is a book of wars and battles, and they go in and they, they possess Canaan and they establish the nation of Israel. Then Israel goes through a consistent pattern of falling away from God, suffering the consequences, and then being delivered by a judge. So if you read the book of Judges, almost every chapter kind of starts out with, then the people of God did evil in the sight of God. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of God. It was a consistent pattern. They would fall away from God. They would suffer consequences. Those consequences were usually another nation oppressing them. And then a judge would rise up to set the people free. And the judge was usually a prophet or a military leader or somebody like that. And so we have the book of Judges. Then, this is interesting, Israel becomes a monarchy even though it wasn't God's best for them. From the time of Moses all the way through the book of Judges, Israel was what we would call a theocracy. They were truly a government led by God. But then the Israelites started looking around at all the kingdoms around them, and they said, you know what? Everybody around us has a king. We want a king also. And God says to them, that's a kind of a bad idea. That's not going to work out well. But they said, no, we want a king. So God gave them their way and let them become a monarchy, even though it wasn't God's best for them. The first king of Israel was named King Saul, and he quickly failed. But then the kingdom of Israel begins to flourish under King David and King Solomon. King David has such a special relationship with God. He has such a heart for God that God makes a promise to him that his kingdom would stand forever. Now, what does that mean, that, that God would tell David that his kingdom would stand forever? Well, it can only mean one thing, that God was saying that the Savior was going to come through King David's line, that his family line would bring forth the Savior. That's the only way that King David would have an eternal kingdom. So under King David, the, the nation of Israel is unified and becomes more powerful than it ever was before. And then under King Solomon, it becomes richer than it ever was before. It was one of the richest kingdoms in the history of the world under King Solomon. But then, once Solomon's son becomes the king, there's a civil war that breaks out and the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom becomes known as Israel. It made its capital Samaria, and through the history of the northern kingdom, they had 20 kings. And all 20 of those kings abandoned God and led the people astray. They didn't get a single good king in the northern kingdom. Because of that, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 723 B.C., and the people are taken into captivity. 
The southern kingdom became known as Judah. Why? Because this is where God made sure that David's family line would maintain its kingdom. David was from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, the southern kingdom became known as Judah. Jerusalem continued to be its capital. Judah had 19 kings and one queen in its history. Twelve of them abandoned God. But eight of them loved God and restored people back to the worship of the one true God. Because of that, the southern kingdom lasted a little longer than the northern kingdom, about 140 years longer. But then in 586 BC, the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. The people were taken into captivity, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple of God was burned to the ground. And then after 70 years of being exiled in captivity, God allowed the people to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple of God. And that's where the history stops in the Old Testament. Now, we know the rest of Jewish history after that, but in the Old Testament, that's where it stops. So what we see here is this, is that Israel didn't do very well, right? They struggled a little bit, more than a little bit. They struggled a lot, but God continued to preserve them. Why? Because it was God's plan to bring his Savior out of the nation of Israel. And so no matter what happened, God was not going to let the nation of Israel completely fall. He was not going to let the Jewish people completely go away. Even when conquering came, even when captivity came, there was always a remnant of people that God kept and that God endured. Throughout the entire history of Israel, he made sure that Israel would be sustained so that he could bring a savior that would redeem all of mankind. So that's what we have. So Antonio, if we go back to our slide of all the books of the Bible, what you're going to see as you go through the history books is you're going to see Joshua, which goes chronologically, and then you're going to see Judges, which also goes in order. Then you're going to find Ruth, which actually fits into the storyline of Judges. Then you've got First and Second Samuel that continues the story. But then you've got 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Those overlap and tell the same story of the same time period of the divided kingdom and how both of them ended up going into captivity. You're going to find all of that in Kings and Chronicles. Then you got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these are actually out of order. If they had put them in order, Esther would have gone first. Because Esther saved the Jewish people while they were still in captivity. And then after Esther saved the people, Ezra and Nehemiah were allowed to lead the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild. So again, every time you read a book, you've got to ask yourself, where does it fit? Where does it fit in the story, and why is it right here? So that's our overview of the history books. Now let's look at some of the legacy that is passed down to us from these history books. Now the easy thing to do would have just been to look at King David. He's the most important figure in the history of Israel. But I didn't want to do that because I wanted to take some time to not only focus on the men of the Bible, but to focus on the women of the Bible. And the Old Testament history books are, are, is one of the best places to find some amazing stories of women of faith. So today, we're going to look at our legacy from the great women of the Old Testament. What do some of the great women of the Old Testament have to say to us today? And how is that word going to speak to us? So we're going to start with Deborah. Deborah was one of the judges I talked about in the book of Judges. So let's go to Judges chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 4 through 9. It says this, Now Deborah, a prophetess, 
The wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. All right, so all of a sudden we get this picture of this woman named Deborah who became known as a prophetess in Israel. This is a big deal because this was a patriarchal society. The men ruled everything. The men were looked to for all of the leadership. Women didn't have a voice. And yet somehow in this male-dominated society, Deborah rose up to become recognized as a prophetess and a judge over the nation of Israel to the point where people would come to her to get all of the advice and the judgment they needed on whatever disputes they were having. It was such a big deal, they named a palm tree after her. There you go, okay. Some of you got it. First service didn't laugh at all. Okay, so, but they did. They named a palm tree after her. She sat under the palm tree of Deborah. Okay, so, I also find it fascinating that she was married, right? Because we think for a woman to rise up in a man's world, she had to be like an independent woman, and she had to be like, I don't need a man, and I'm going to do this myself. No, she was married. So somehow she found the balance between submitting to her husband and respecting her husband and yet still rising up as the leader of the nation. She is a fascinating character. So let's see what happens with Deborah. We're going to pick it up here. It says, Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded... Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Natali and from the sons of Zebulon. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. So she calls Barak. We don't know who Barak is, except that he obviously he was some sort of a military leader. Now, Israel was under oppression from another nation like we just talked about. At this time, the leader of that other nation was Sisera. And Sisera was known for his thousands of chariots and his mighty men that were armored and ready for war. And Israel just could not stand up to Sisera's army. So Deborah calls Barak and says, Listen, I have a word from God. Thus saith the Lord, you're supposed to go get 10,000 men and then I'm going to stir up a fight with Sisera and you're going to go to battle and you're going to defeat Sisera. And I love this. This is my favorite part is Barak's response. And then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I won't go. He wasn't having any of this, right? He's like, oh, really? God told you to tell me to go to war, huh? He didn't tell you to go. I'm supposed to go fight this ridiculously huge army. He's like, no way. If you want me to go fight, you come with me. You're the one that got the word from God. And so Deborah answers him. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. She says, that's fine. I'll go with you. But now that you know, a woman's going to get credit for winning this war, not you. So what would Deborah say to us today? What is the legacy being handed down from Deborah? It is this. Put some feet to your faith. That's what Deborah is saying. 
She didn't just have a thus saith the Lord. She didn't just have a word to send other people off. When she was called to the carpet on it and said, well, if this is your word, you come with me. She said, okay. And she got up and she came with him. It reminds me of the story of the daredevil tightrope walker who walked across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. And after he had done that several times, you know how daredevils are. They get bored and you got to keep upping the level of the craziness that you do. And so after getting bored with just tightroping across Niagara Falls, he decided his next step was he was going to walk across the falls on a tightrope while pushing a wheelbarrow. So he gets his wheelbarrow and he's standing there at the edge of the falls and a huge crowd begins to gather around. Everybody wants to see this. And then he starts to have second thoughts. Maybe this is a really bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't do this. And so he starts to back down. Well, there's one guy in the crowd who says to him, no, don't back down. You can do this. We're all here. We're with you. We've got your back. And the tightrope walker was like, really? You think I should do this? Yes, you should. This is going to be awesome. We believe in you. So the tightrope walker looks at him and says, okay, well, in that case then, why don't you get in the wheelbarrow? Right? Why don't you get in the wheelbarrow? If you believe in me, if you're serious about this, then jump in. Put some feet where your faith is. And you see, that's exactly what Deborah did. Barak says to her, get in the wheelbarrow. And she does. She gets in the wheelbarrow. And because she gets in the wheelbarrow, she inspires 10,000 men to go to war. And those men go to war and set their nation free. That should get somebody fired up today, right? We need to get a little bit excited here. Put some feet to your faith. If God has given you a word, if God has put something on your heart, don't just speak the word. Step out and do something to put some feet to it. Get in the wheelbarrow. Whatever God has asked you to do, get in the wheelbarrow. And what will happen? You will inspire people. People will begin to believe in your faith. And maybe like Deborah, you'll change a nation. Put some feet to your faith, Deborah says. Next woman I'd like to look at is Ruth. Was that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he got in or not. That's just, that's the end of the story from what I read. <laughs> Let's talk about Ruth. If you don't know the story of Ruth, here's what happened. There was a woman named Naomi. She and her husband were Israelites, and there was a great famine in Israel during the time of the judges. And so they had to leave Israel to go find food, and they ended up in this nation called Moab. So they're in Moab, and they've got two sons with them, and those sons grow up, and those sons decide to marry women from Moab. So now you've got Naomi and her husband, and then their two sons, and now their two daughters-in-law. Well, over the course of time, Naomi's husband dies, and then one of her son dies, and then her other son dies. All three men in her family die, so all that's left now is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, who are both Moabite women. So what does Naomi do? She says to these women, it's time for you to go home. Again, in this patriarchal culture, women who were widows, the only way they stood a chance is if they had family that would take care of them because they couldn't work to take care of themselves. 
And so if they didn't have family to take care of them, then they were destined for poverty and for begging. And so Naomi says to these two women, go home. Your families will still take care of you. You're still young enough. You can get married again. You're going to be okay. Just go home. Four times she tells these young women to go home. Let's pick it up in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 15. It says this. Then she, talking about Naomi, then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So these two Moabite women, one of them was named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, that's totally different, and the other one was Ruth. Orpah, after the third time that Naomi tells her to go home, Orpah says, all right, I'm out, I get it. Hug and a kiss, I'm gone. And she leaves and goes back to her family. And that's when Naomi turns to Ruth and says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, you need to go also. And Ruth's response is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture that we have. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Ruth said, stop trying to talk me out of staying. I've heard it four times, and I've heard it enough. I'm not going back. Naomi, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, that's where I'm going to die. Your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. Ruth decided, you know what? I am not going to give in to the pressure to just do what is comfortable. Because going back home to her family, taking care of her, would have been much more comfortable. She says, I'm not going to give in to the pressure to do what's comfortable. I'm committing to you, Naomi, and I'm committing to your people and to your God. And what that means is, is I'm forsaking my family and my people and my gods. Because I believe in your God. So much so, she's even willing to swear on it. Let God kill me if I ever separate from you. She's willing to swear on the name of Naomi's one true God. And then what happens? Because of her devotion, because of Ruth's absolute loyalty and her willingness to sacrifice, God is able to reveal himself to Ruth. He reveals himself as her provider as he provides for Ruth and Naomi along the way. He reveals himself as her redeemer, as he redeems her, and she does find a new husband in Israel and marries an Israelite man, and he reveals himself and his will for her life. And what is significant about the story of Ruth? Well, the man who married Ruth, his name was Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth had a baby, and they named him Obed. Obed had a baby and named him Jesse. Jesse had a bunch of sons, but the youngest one, he named David, who we now know as King David. Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. What does that mean? That means that she was in the family line of Jesus Christ himself. 
And she was a Moabite. She wasn't even one of God's chosen people. And yet her willingness to show her absolute devotion to God and her willingness to sacrifice to be a part of the people of God allowed God to reveal himself to her and make her a part of his great plan of salvation. And so what would Ruth say to us today? She would say, God is discovered in your devotion and your sacrifice. And if there is anything that you're holding back, anything at all, give it all to God. And you will find him. And you will find his will for your life. And you will find yourself being a part of God's great story of salvation. Amen? Let me have the worship team come back up today. We got one last amazing lady from the Old Testament that we want to talk about. And that is Esther. And the story of Esther, if you've ever heard it before... The one line we always focus on is, for such a time as this. But again, I didn't want to take the easy road. So I don't want to focus on for such a time as this. I want to focus on another line from the story of Esther. For those of you that don't know the story, this is the time, this is the 70 years when God's people are exiled. And Esther, as a young Jewish girl, ends up being chosen to be the king's wife. Why? Because she won a beauty contest. He thought she was the most beautiful of all the girls that were lined up for him. And she won the contest. And so she actually became queen of a foreign empire as a young Jewish girl. But while she was the queen, a plan was hatched to seek out and murder all of the Jewish people. And her cousin Mordecai comes to her. And says, Esther, you're the only one that can talk to the king. You're the only one that can save your people. You're the only one that can stop this plan of all the Jews being murdered. And he says to her, don't think that because you're living large in the palace and you got the fancy clothes and you're beautiful and you think you're all that, don't think that you'll escape either. You're going to get killed too. And Esther says, well, in that case, I'm going to go talk to the king. But here's the problem. To talk to the king without being invited first was a death sentence. The king would just put you to death. And she says to her cousin, I don't think he's calling me anytime soon. And when he does call me, let's be honest, he's not calling me to talk political strategy. Right? It's a hookup call when she gets called to go see the king. She says, but you know what? I'm going to go talk to him anyway. And she says these words, if I must die, then I must die. And that is what Esther is speaking to us today. If you must die, then you must die. Esther realized that God had put her in that place at that time because there was something she needed to do to save her people. And she trusted enough that her life belonged completely to God. But she said, you know what, if I have to die to do what God has called me to do, then I'll die because my life belongs completely to God. And she says to you today, if you must die, you must die. But your life belongs completely to God. And for whatever reason he has put you in this time and place, do it. Don't hesitate. Don't be afraid. Do it. Whatever he calls you to do, do it. If you must be uncomfortable, then be uncomfortable. If you must be rejected, then be rejected. 
If you must lose something, then lose something. Whatever the case may be, but your life belongs completely to God. And don't miss out on your chance to fulfill the very purpose for which God has you in this season. And Esther did go to the king. And the king did listen. And not only was she not put to death, but he canceled the whole plan. And the Jewish people were saved that day. And again, because the Jewish people were saved, eventually Jesus came from the Jewish people. If you must die, you must die. Let these women from the Old Testament speak to you. This is a part of our legacy. Man, when we read the Bible, I want us to get fired up like this. Not just like, oh, I've, I've read about Esther a hundred times before. No, read Esther and let it come to life for you. If I must die, then I must die. Will you stand with me today? I just want God to minister to our hearts today. Jesus, God, would you stir in us a new passion? We began the service today talking about a zeal for your house. And we're going to finish the service today talking about a zeal for your word. Let there be a passion for your word that rises up within us. For those that maybe we've gotten bored with reading your word, a new fire would burn. For those of us that have never read it because we've just been afraid of it, it's just too much to understand, I pray a fire would begin to burn. That we would long for your word and we would long for the fresh fire that comes from your word every day. That it would burn within us. Oh, that it would help us to live our lives every day. It would be a word that sustains us. It would be a word that changes us. It would be a word in due season that gives us exactly what we need to get through the hardships we face today. It would be a word that equips us to fulfill our purpose for this day and all that God has for us to do. Let that fire burn in our hearts for your word, Lord.